What battles took place in the Southern theater of the Revolutionary War that finally allowed the American soldier to win? What role did France play in the final victory? And how did General Washington stop a conspiracy of officers at Newburgh, New York? For answers to these questions, stay tuned. Welcome to the U.S. Army History and Heritage Podcast, the official podcast of the United States Army Center of Military History. The Center of Military History writes and publishes the Army's official history, manages the U.S. Army Museum Enterprise, and provides historical support throughout the U.S. Army. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. I'm Lee Reynolds, the Strategic Communications Officer for the Center of Military History. In this episode, we are covering the final stages of the Revolutionary War, or what's best described as the War in the South, which led to the final victory. Joining me is Revolutionary War historian John Moss. Welcome, John. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's great to have you here. So a little bit about uh, John. Dr. John R. Moss is an education staff member of the new National Museum of the United States Army at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. He received his B.A. from Washington and Lee University and his Ph.D. in early American history at The Ohio State University. He served in the 80th Division of the U.S. Army Reserve. Dr. Moss is also the author of several books and numerous articles on early U.S. military history, including The Road to Yorktown, Jefferson, Lafayette, and the British Invasion of Virginia in 2015, George Washington's Virginia in 2017, and The Battle of Guilford Courthouse, a most desperate engagement in 2020. Wow, that's pretty cool. A lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of history there. Uh, what am I missing? Anything else that uh, you've done? I was the author of two publications done by the Army Center of Military History. Uh, one was in the War of 1812 series. Uh, I did the first volume, which was called Defending the New Nation, which went from immediately after the Revolutionary War in 1784 through 1811, mm-hmm. uh, right before the War of 1812. Uh, really through the Battle of Tippecanoe. And then I wrote the volume of the Civil War series on the Petersburg and Appomattox campaigns. Oh, okay. So I uh, had a lot of fun doing those, um, particularly the one on Petersburg and Appomattox. Enjoyed mm-hmm. it a lot. Right, now, are you from Virginia? Is that why uh, you have a connection to that? Um, I have lived in Virginia since I was 11. Oh, wow. Uh, over in the Lexington, Rockbridge County area. Mm. All right. Well, good. Well, um, but today we're going to pick your brain about the Revolutionary War and specifically, as we mentioned, um, the, um, uh, the war in the South. So let's shift to that. You know, previously we, we've spoken about um, the war in the middle states and in the, in the northern uh, colonies. But in late 1778, early 1779, the British shifted their main effort to the south. Why was that? Well, the background is that the emphasis became on securing the territory of the south at this period. Uh, The British were under the impression that there was a huge number of loyalists in the south, Mm -hmm. mostly in the Carolinas and Georgia. And they were being uh, told in London— 
that a significant force, uh, if it arrived in the South, uh, the loyalists would would flock to it and they would form their own military units and that that would be easy to do and basically conquer the Carolinas and Georgia. Mm. Um, They were also interested in shifting the war to the South because by this time, France had come in to the war on the side of the Americans and the big emphasis became capturing or retaining the various sugar islands in the West Indies. So they wanted an area in the South to use as a base for those operations. All right, then let's talk about what the American army looked like in the South. What was the size type of forces that they had? And I, I mean, I know that we had official Continental Army. I'm guessing we had militia. But also, what role did the American Indians or uh, freed uh, black men and French forces play? Well, other than two campaigns, uh, Yorktown in 1781 and then Charlestown, which is now Charleston, South Carolina, in 1780, uh, which had very large forces on both sides, uh, Yorktown and in particular. But most of the battles and engagements in the South, even the most famous ones we know of, uh, were very small affairs. Um, most of the time, the British had less than 3,000 troops and uh, the Americans uh, less than less than 5,000, even at Guilford Courthouse. Mm-hmm. So they weren't big, um, big, large-scale engagements such as the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse or the Saratoga Campaign or Brandywine near mm-hmm. Philadelphia. They were, they were quite small. And in addition to those types of units you just mentioned, um, it's important to note that the militia were uh, in existence for both the Patriot side and the Loyalist side. There were many, oh, wow. many regiments uh, and companies raised, um, even even put in uniform, uh, to fight alongside the British. Uh, in fact, one of the more famous ones that folks might have heard of is Tarleton's Legion. Tarleton was a cavalry commander in the South, notorious for brutality, deserved or not deserved. Uh, but his his unit, the British Legion, was, was a loyalist uh, unit. Um, in the South, the Indians um, mostly were important during the beginning of the war. There was a 1776 campaign that was launched from Virginia and North Carolina against the Cherokees. Mm-hmm. Uh, in what is now Western North Carolina and Eastern Tennessee. Um, Then there were some units of African Americans, uh, the the two most famous ones being uh, a regiment uh, from Rhode Island that was made up of uh, numerous uh, freed uh, freemen. And um, they fought during the Yorktown campaign, but... Early in the war, um, in 1775, the governor of Virginia uh, put out a call for uh, slaves to run away to the British that were in the Tidewater area and that they would be uh, freed and they would be uh, clothed and armed. And it was called the Loyal Ethiopian Regiment. 
and of course the uh, that enraged slave owners mm-hmm. uh, and and actually probably tilted many loyalists or neutral slave owners toward the patriot cause oh, because wow. uh, they would they were losing what they considered to be their property mm-hmm. <clears throat> so the the british thinking that we had um um, that loyalists would join up. There's there's truth to that to some degree. Then right, there were quite a number of loyalist uh, regiments that were raised in the south, and then for various campaigns, uh, loyalist units that were raised in the north were shipped to the south in order to oh, wow. um, be be in some of the campaigns. And then let's talk about the American leaders at, at this point here in, in the South. They see the British coming down. Um, who, who were the key leaders here, and what was their strategy to defend against the British? Well, the, key, uh, the two key commanders for the Americans during the Southern Campaign from uh, 1780 through 1783, the first one was Horatio Gates, and he was the hero of Saratoga. He was the American commander during the Saratoga campaign that was successful against the British. But when he got uh, to the South, to paraphrase a general that was not his friend, his his uh, northern laurels turned into southern willows, <laughs> which meant that he faced a disastrous hmm. brief campaign at the Battle of Camden on August hmm. 16, 1780 in South Carolina, where the American force was routed. And once that happened... Washington, uh, at Congress's request, uh, chose the next commander himself, which was Nathaniel Green, mm-hmm. which, who was a, a Rhode Islander. And Green arrived in the South in Dece- early December of 1780, and it was, it was after that that you had some of the more well-known Southern battles, such as Cowpens. Mm-hmm. Guilford Courthouse, Hobkirk Hill, and Utah Springs. Those were four of the battles that that, that um, Green was the commander of. And he was a very talented man. Uh, he had been the Army, the George Washington's quartermaster for a year or so. Uh, and he knew logistics, and he knew, just like Washington knew, that his job was not to uh, try to defeat the British in battle, but to avoid getting his own army defeated, he had to stay on. He had to, he had to have an army on the ground to represent the cause of independence. Right. And there were some uh, uh, subordinates below him. Daniel Morgan was another, the American commander at the Battle of Cowpens, a brilliant victory. Uh, there were several uh, what we would we call today guerrilla leaders, meaning um, small units of hit and run type tactics. Uh, the most famous one probably being Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox mm-hmm. from South Carolina, uh, but also Thomas Sumter uh, and uh, Andrew Pickens, who were both also from South Carolina. Uh-huh. So you t- you've already talked about Camden. So it was a, a big loss for the American forces. Right. So what happened after Camden? So um, Washington replaces uh, Gates with, with Green. Right. And then where, do, where did the battles go after that? So Green arrived in Charlotte, North Carolina on December 2nd, 1780, and that's where he be, he took over command from Gates. It's important to note that the stylized imagery either in film, TV, or what's depicted in paint, in, in paintings of the American 
uniforms and equipment and what have you is 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 just false. Huh. Um, <clears throat> you can read Green's reports, Morgan's reports, uh, letters, correspondence of a lot of officers from the Army. Uh, half the men were so ill-clad that they couldn't report for drill on the parade ground. Uh, there, uh, a lot of them had uh, no shoes, just in tatters, only had blankets to wear. And you're talking about the militia, or are you talking about this the is Continental? This is the Continentals. Oh, wow. Yep. Uh, it was very difficult to resupply them. And Green figured that out pretty fast when he was on his way from West Point to take up his uh, command in the South. As he as he went south, he stopped in Philadelphia, Annapolis, and Richmond to try to get those states to provide more money and supplies and equipment. And he figured out pretty early on his trip down that um, it was going to be very, very difficult. So um, he faced a lot of challenges logistically and uh, with equipment, weapons, um, just even even having people to repair wagons for his use or muskets that were broken. Um, but he, he triumphed in the end. Right. And um, <clears throat> let's talk re- really quick. Uh, we've talked about the American leaders. Who are the British leaders? Who are we facing here? Well, uh, the big attack was on Charleston, South Carolina, as I mentioned, in the uh, early part of 1780. And that was a large expedition that came from New York City by boat and uh, thousands of troops and artillery, uh, even even cavalry came on the on the ships. And that was led by Sir Henry Clinton, who mm-hmm. was the commander in chief of all British forces in North America. His second in command uh, was probably a name most folks would know, which was um, uh, Charles Lord Cornwallis. Mm-hmm. The two of them did not get along at all. Uh, they were they were enemies. Uh, they did not work well together during the campaign. But Charleston fell in uh, May of seventeen. 80, and uh, soon after that, Clinton sailed back with part of the troops to New York, and for the rest of the period, it was really Cornwallis who was the commander in in, uh, Cowpens. Um, He wasn't physically there, but a a detachment of under Tarleton was there, Uh, Camden, Guilford Courthouse, and then eventually Yorktown. I want to talk a little bit about the the Battle of Cowpens and and kind of what led up to that, because I, I just find that the tactics that were used there was really very interesting. Um, the militia, I, I guess, they hadn't, you know, talked to me about that, but my understanding is they had not been performing as well as the Continental Army, and that the commander, was it uh, was it Green or Morgan at Morgan. At, at Morgan that used that to his advantage? Can you can you explain mm-hmm. that? Um. Yes, they had very poor performance evaluations uh, throughout the uh, Southern campaigns. Um, So at Cowpens, which is um, in what's called the upcountry of South Carolina, it's west of Charlotte. If you Mm -hmm. if you're if you're driving in that area today, it's near Gaffney, about an hour west drive from from um, Charlotte. It's a very pretty national battlefield park. The Park Service owns it. Uh, Morgan had been detached from the army with a small force of about 800 Continentals or so, and um, 
he uh, was detached by General Green, who took the rest of the army uh, farther to the east in an area that's mm-hmm. called Shiraz. That's in South Carolina also on the P.D. River. And Morgan was tasked with uh, kind of causing trouble for the British mm-hmm. among their western outposts, most most notably – uh, was a place oddly named 96 South Carolina. Yeah. Um, so the British had a base there, and Cornwallis, as he was moving north from um, from um, uh, Winsboro, South Carolina, to move into North Carolina, he detached uh, Tarleton, uh, Bannister Tarleton, who's a hard-driving, aggressive cavalry commander to meet up with and destroy Morgan's force. Mm. So Morgan was retreating north. Uh, This was to the west. These actions between Tarleton and Morgan were to the west of Cornwallis's axis of advance toward North Carolina. Uh, Eventually, Morgan gathered militia from North Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina, and Georgia to supplement his his uh, force. He realized that Tarleton, whose troops were mostly mounted, was going to catch up with them, and he did not want to be in the middle of crossing a river mm. when Tarleton and his men approached. It would be very dangerous. So he stopped uh, four or five miles uh, before, his, before the last river he had to cross, the Broad River, and he set up his he set up his his defensive position in what today we would call a defense in depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he set up three lines. The first line was riflemen, and they were supposed to delay Tarleton's initial advance to try to knock the plans that the British had off the rails a little bit, uh, maybe uh, produce some casualties. And they only really had to fire two or three volleys, and then they could fall back to the second line and beyond. And the second line was made up of militia, and Morgan also instructed them, you know, give two or three volleys, again, to disrupt uh, the advance of Tarleton's troops. Uh, and then the third line on the on, on a rise, uh, it's, it's not even really a ridge, it's, it's kind of a low hill, Though that's where he put his Maryland, Virginia, and Delaware Continentals mm-hmm. uh, was was on that third line, and so he was hoping that by the time the British attacked the third line, they would have been disrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, he also had a, a small cavalry contingent that was hidden behind that hill under William Washington, who was a distant cousin of George Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a Continental Cavalry officer. So Tarleton, with his own loyalists and cavalry, and he also had uh, one battalion of the 71st Regiment and the 7th Regiment of Foot, uh, attacked uh, what, what, I would, what I would call impetuously. He did mm-hmm. not wait for all of the troops to come up. Uh, he, was, he was, you know, f- full steam ahead. There's this rebel militia. We know they're going to run. Mm-hmm. But Morgan's plan worked, and the militia knew that if they would just fire two or three volleys, they could fall back, regroup behind the Continentals. And in the end, what happened was what was called a double envelopment, 
which is where the Americans were able to stand fast in the center and then hit Tarleton's flanks at the same time with their um, cavalry and infantry. And so Tarleton, out of a force of about 1,000, lost about 875, most of them captured, most captured. It was a tremendous victory. They, mm-hmm. the the Americans got two field pieces, which were very hard to come by mm-hmm. for them, and um, so that was really Morgan's main right. main achievement in the South. That was that was in that was January seventeenth, seventeen eighty one. Yeah, significant victory uh, for the American army, and then <clears throat> moving north. Right. So a- after this battle, you know, we want to get up to uh, Guilford Courthouse. I think right. that's something you know a lot about. Yes, um, I do. You wrote a book about I that. Did. So. Um, what happened there, um, and what was the significance of that? So after the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, uh, Morgan sent a detachment of his men to guard all those prisoners directly after Cowpens, yeah. okay. directly north to to secure them. But he moved northeast to cross the main river in western North Carolina, which is the Catawba. And it was flooded. He was able to get across Cornwallis. Uh, every Cornwallis was not able to cross because uh, the Americans had removed almost all the boats. Uh, they faced him on the on the Catawba River at the end of January. Meanwhile, Green brought the rest of the army to Guilford Courthouse, um, and that's where Morgan was was heading. Uh, there was a. Uh, the British managed to cross the Catawba at Cowan's Ford, and Green realized that when once he was he was um, he his main army joined with Morgan's contingent, he was still too weak. Uh, his troops still poorly equipped to face Cornwallis in battle, so he decided to move into Virginia. And after that, there was a there was a, a period of about two weeks. Uh, called the race to the Dan. Um, actually, it was about a week, and they were trying to get Green was trying to get across the Dan River into Virginia, where he'd be more easily supplied. Mm-hmm. And Cornwallis gave chase. Uh, the Americans were able to cross the Dan at a place in Virginia that's now called South Boston. Mm-hmm. It's near the Virginia North Carolina line in Halifax County. And the British showed up on the other side of the bank about eight hours later, having not been able to catch up. Um, there was another that followed another kind of two week period where they sparred with each other a little bit. Green changed his campsites almost every evening just to keep the British off mm. their balance. Um, Cornwallis needed to move to a little bit um, more of a easier way to get supplied. So he moved uh, his his position uh, by March 14th uh, to central North Carolina, very close to, to modern High Point, North Carolina. And Green decided on the 14th that he was he, he had been reinforced by uh, uh, extra continental units from Virginia and Maryland and uh, thousands of North Carolina Virginia militia. Mm-hmm. So he figured, this this is my chance. I, I may not ever have that many troops under my command again. He was correct. Mm-hmm. And um, he was moving to attack uh, Cornwallis. Now, one of the things that I've pointed out in my book is that almost every 
printed source, modern either book, website, article, encyclopedia entry says that Green took up a defensive position at Guilford Courthouse, which he had seen two weeks earlier, and waited for the British to attack. It's incorrect. All the contemporary evidence, including Green's reports, Light Horse Harry Lee's reports, William Washington's reports, they all state that Green was moving toward Cornwallis's position to attack. Um, However, at 3 in the morning on the 15th of March... Light Horse Harry Lee scouts reported that Cornwallis was coming after Green. Mm-hmm. So Green said, okay, well, let's just stay in our position. The battle was several hours long. He used a similar defense in depth that he had, that he had gotten from um, Daniel Morgan. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Unfortunately, he put all the North, Carolini- North Carolinians and the militia in the first line bolstered by regular troops on the flanks. Uh, Many of them ran without firing a shot. Uh, Cornwallis Cornwallis used a a head-on approach, which is there was no real finesse to his battle plan. He saw militia and attacked. That's what he did at at Camden. It was very successful. Um, The Virginians in the second line uh, were much better at staying in their lines. Many of them had been Continental soldiers before, and their terms had expired, Mm -hmm. and they were doing militia duty. Um, They they stood for many volleys. Finally, the British were so disrupted that they arrived at the third American line near the courthouse, which consisted of artillery and four Continental regiments, two Virginia, two Maryland. Um, The... Uh, left flank of Green's position gave way. Everyone else was standing fast, and Green decided again with this prudence of needing to have an army in the field that discretion was the better part of valor, mm-hmm. as they say, and he led an orderly retreat to a predetermined location. Um, and and so uh, Cornwallis technically won the battle in, in 18th century terms uh, by holding the field, Mm -hmm. but his army suffered 25% casualties and even higher among the officers. And remember, this is an army that had had been on the move since July of 1780 and had marched uh, to Camden Cowpens mm-hmm. and Guilford by by March, they were they were in just as bad a condition in some ways mm-hmm. as the Americans uh, right. were. So after this, <clears throat> um, what did uh, Cornwallis do? Well, Cornwallis decided to abandon his attempt to conquer North Carolina, and he moved to Wilmington to get resupplied. And because of that, I argue that the key battle in the South during the Revolutionary War uh, in in this final uh, 1780-1781 time period was Guilford Courthouse, not Cowpens. Mm. Because if you look at it, uh, Cornwallis advanced after Camden, and uh, when the Americans won a victory, a militia victory at King's Mountain, Mm -hmm. Cornwallis retreated but then advanced again. Mm-hmm. He lost uh, a huge part of his army at Cowpens 
in January of 1781, but did not retreat. He kept mm-hmm. going. And it, w- it was only Guilford Courthouse mm-hmm. w- where he won the battle, mm-hmm. but had to retreat and abandon his campaign. That's a turning point. Mm-hmm. That is a strategic turning point that was decisive, whereas the other battles, did uh, he kept advancing. It was only Guilford Courthouse that battle that caused him to stop advancing, to give up that attempt. And what did Green and the American army do? Did they pursue Cornwallis? They did. Um, Cornwallis basically marched down the Cape Fear River uh, all the way to Wilmington uh, by way of what was at that time called Campbelltown, uh, but is now known as Fayetteville, home of Fort Bragg. Mm. Um, So Green uh, pursued Cornwallis, but... Uh, once they approached Wilmington, he decided that they were going to move that he was going to move his army into South Carolina and try to uh, retake that area. He knew Cornwallis was was fairly weak at that point in April of 1781, and uh, Cornwallis could either chase him or or get water transportation back to Charlestown. Mm-hmm. But Green was really risking a lot by leaving Cornwallis in the rear. But he was in friendly territory, Green was, and um, as we know, Cornwallis did not chase uh, Green after all. Right. So let's talk about Yorktown. How did, um, how did Cornwallis end up getting to Yorktown? What was the American response to that? So after Guilford Courthouse and both armies moved toward Wilmington, then again Green moved into South Carolina, Green – Uh, doesn't have anything more to do at that point, really, with the Yorktown campaign. So at the end of April, Cornwallis decided to move to Virginia. He said, unless Virginia is subdued, that the war will not be won. Because Virginia was really providing the equipment, the food, uh, reinforcements uh, in in several areas in Central and and, uh, Virginia and, and Richmond, um, Chesterfield, those areas. So Cornwallis decided he was going to take the army uh, and meet up with another smaller force that was under uh, General William Phillips at Petersburg and the traitor Benedict Arnold. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Cornwallis eventually moved into Virginia and took command, had a fairly large army. Um, the campaign between Cornwallis and the Americans in Virginia is the subject of uh, my book, The Road to Yorktown. The Americans, uh, Virginians, were able to have some troops, uh, militia troops, but they're very ineffective. So Washington realized that he had to do something to uh, help Virginia stay in the war. So he sent a contingent of about a thousand American Continental Light Infantrymen under the Marquis de Lafayette. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the way from New Jersey to Richmond. And there was a campaign of about a month all in central Virginia between uh, Richmond and Charlottesville. Uh, Eventually, Cornwallis uh, decided that uh, he was going to move to the coast to get resupplied Mm -hmm. and figure out, you know, what they needed to do to kind of subdue Virginia uh, so they eventually moved down to Williamsburg and uh, Washington and the French, uh, our allies, planned a campaign that was going to be one of one of a, an alliance with and, and with the French 
who would supply troops and, more importantly, a naval asset mm-hmm. to be able to uh, get in at the British uh, in 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 the uh, Tidewater area. Mm-hmm. So eventually Cornwallis was looking for a suitable port for, for mainline ships and that was defensible against the weather also. And after several choices or explorations of other places, they chose uh, Yorktown on the York River. Right. And then – so then um, the American forces with the French, mm-hmm. uh, they come in and what, what happens is a siege, I think. So is, right. At the end of uh, – at the beginning of September through uh, October 17th was the siege of Yorktown. Uh, the key battle, though, was the Battle of the Capes, which was the French Navy mm-hmm. against the British Navy, which is, is very complicated. And mm-hmm. I'm not a naval historian, right. but uh, the long story short is that the French were able to prevent the British Navy from getting to Yorktown and resupplying Cornwallis and protecting him. Mm-hmm. And once they had bottled up the Chesapeake Bay, that it, w- it was only a matter of time at that right. point. Um, so uh, the French and the Americans, the French under Rochambeau, they marched and sailed and and brought their uh, man and equipment uh, basically down what is now I ninety five. Wasn't that it was it was not called that at the time, mm-hmm. um, and were able to uh, successfully lay siege mm-hmm. to the British defenses at Yorktown. And um, and there was also a conti- there was also a, a section across from Yorktown uh, on the on Gloucester Point uh, that the, mm-hmm. that there was right. also some positions and eventually across the river mm-hmm, yeah. across the York River and, and what's now Glo- what was then to Gloucester County uh, but finally the British surrendered uh, their entire force of of uh, redcoats and Hessians and loyalists and that that really was. The final nail in the coffin, so to speak, that was the second British force to have been surrounded and captured, and that that was going to do it. Because remember, while this is going on, there's still that battle for the uh, for the islands in the West Indies. Oh, right, and yes. So, and this was a major army that was lost, and they really had to focus on one or the other at that point. Now, a lot of people think, and I know I, I used to until I learned more about it here, that, oh, here's Yorktown. We we win at Yorktown. We defeat the British. The Revolutionary War is over. But that's not quite accurate. That is not accurate. Um, the British still maintained their position uh, in New York City, which they actually held until November of 1783. Mm-hmm. And Charleston, which they also held into the fall of 1783, um, they were also in st- still held Canada. At that point, Clinton, Cornwallis, uh, the Howe brothers, all those names that we know mm-hmm. from the beginning of of the war, those those guys were all back in England. And the overall commander was Sir Sir Guy Carleton, whose headquarters was at Quebec, oh. and uh, he he kind of oversaw the the British logistics in these positions. But for the most part, uh, Charleston, New York, and some other isolated uh, small garrisons, the, there, were, there were minor skirmishes. Um, Green's other two battles that he fought, uh, Hobkirk's Hill and uh, Utah Springs, they actually were over before Yorktown. 
So it kind of petered out into negotiations and and eventually the Treaty of Paris in 1783. Right. So <clears throat> what happened to the American army then between the American victory in Yorktown and the Treaty of Paris? Did the American army then like surround the areas where the British were? Did they end up going home? What happened? So in the South, uh, General Green was still the commander until the surrender, and he kept a very small army, usually less than a thousand men on foot, uh, with just enough power and militia support to be able to keep the British in Charleston and prevent them from from uh, making excursions. But there were there were really no major battles during that point. In the north, uh, after Yorktown, Washington moved his army immediately back to New York uh, to uh, keep an eye on the British. Uh, the, the main British, the main American camps were in the area of West Point, um, Newburgh, and on what's called the Hudson Highlands right. near near mm-hmm. West Point, and some other places too. Virginia, a few in Virginia, um, but really, it was they were just kind of waiting it out at that point. But I understand that there were some morale issues. There were some pay issues, a little um, uh, disappointment within within the the force, um, and especially with the leadership. And can you address those issues? Because that led up to, you know, what we'll talk about in a minute at Newburgh. Right. So the Americans had not been paid. The soldiers, the rank and file, had not been paid, oftentimes for years at a time. In fact, when the French sent their reinforcing fleet right before Yorktown. Uh, they were, they stopped in Cuba in order to get cash, uh, basically a specie, currency, um, hard money, so that the Americans could get paid. And uh, Rochambeau <clears throat> and Lafayette and others had told them, if we don't get the, some money in these soldiers' hands, they may not stay around for the whole yeah. show. And um, the same thing kind of happened up in the New York area. The issue with the officers was that they, a lot of them had given up years uh, with no pay or low pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, others that they missed opportunities home, their farms or plantations or, or, or businesses um, or shipping concerns uh, were in horrible condition, including Mount Vernon. I mean, George Washington mm-hmm. worried about Mount Vernon in the same way. And initially, they had they had been promised uh, uh, pensions after the war, land grants, bounties, things along those lines. And as the war went on, as as most folks know, uh, the the uh, credit worthiness of the country deteriorated rapidly. Uh, There were so many loans that the individual states had taken out, and there were more loans that the uh, Continental uh, Congress had taken out. That's what what Ben Franklin was doing over in Europe, was to try to get French and Dutch loans. Um, So they were worried that the the war was just going to kind of kind of trickle out over over time and that once the once the treaty was signed that congress was going to figuratively throw up its hands and say thanks for helping out guys but we don't have any money whatsoever to pay you mm-hmm. and so there were some rumblings about uh, about <clears throat> petitioning congress 
and and sending a contingent uh, to Congress to explain it. But others had a more dangerous kind of approach, saying, "No, we need we need to march the army or part of the army and show Congress that we mean business." Yeah. And there was a secret meeting called at Newburgh, which was one of the um, one of the army's cantonments on the Hudson River, and uh, it was it was chaired by uh, angry officers. Uh, at a at a meeting uh, in a in a large meeting room at Newburgh, and Washington got uh, wind of this. Yeah, he wasn't invited, was he? He was not invited. Yeah. If you're going to have a meeting, you always should invite your commander, whether he comes <laughs> right. or not, or she comes or not. Mm-hmm. That's different. But so Washington came, and it was totally unexpected. Uh, the other officers were shocked and looking around saying, what's he doing here? He's not <laughs> supposed to be here. And what do we do now is probably the bigger question, right? right. <clears throat> so Washington uh, took out a letter that he was going to read by um, – I forget who – who the letter was from, but it was explaining what Congress was trying to do. Mm-hmm. And um, as as he he had a brilliant theatrical move, mm-hmm. which was to take out his eyeglasses before he read the letter. And none of the other officers had seen him in glasses before. Yeah. And he said something along the lines of, uh, you, if you'll excuse me, gentlemen, um, I, I'm, I'm slowly going blind in the service to my country. So then they're all sitting around like a bunch of chumps thinking, gee, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, he has kind of sacrificed a lot uh, since 1775. And here I am worried about my money. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe maybe we'll give Congress another chance. Right. So he he mm-hmm. diffused that, mm-hmm. uh, and I would add for those for those who visit the new National Museum of the U.S. Army, we have a, a separate film just on the Newburgh incident mm-hmm. that, that's v- very well done. I mm-hmm. think folks would really enjoy seeing that explanation. And and part of the importance of that, and why we're we're really discussing it, is that moment really reaffirmed uh, the civilian control. Of the U.S. Army or or the U.S. military. Mm -hmm. Correct. Washington and every other officer received their commissions either through the Continental Congress or their state governments. Mm -hmm. And that was that was an important thing. Um, It was it was kind of reemphasized when Washington eventually uh, returned home after the British left New York and he returned to Mount Vernon. One of his stops was Annapolis where Congress was meeting to literally give them back his commission. Mm. Um, and uh, it was very, it was a very impressive moment. And um, uh, King George III said that if that story were true, he then Washington would be the greatest man in the world. Wow. Wow. Or or something along those yeah. lines. But mm-hmm. he was very impressed that mm-hmm. he had given up power. Um, that's where, you know, one of one of Washington's heroes uh, was Cincinnatus mm-hmm. uh, of the Roman, you know, Roman Republic, who was a farmer and left his farm to serve in as the commander of uh, the Roman army at the time. And then when the war was over, he went back to his farm. Right. And that's that's why 
that's why Washington identified with mm-hmm. with him quite a bit. Yeah, it's it, it's a great story, and and to be recognized by King George for for doing that, you know, right. and, and and understanding that, it's pretty amazing. So now uh, we have the Treaty of Paris. The war is officially over. Mm-hmm. What happens to the to the U.S. Army now? Well, it was still the Continental Army at the time, and. The you know the, a lot of the a lot of the men in the ranks had dissolved. It was a very small force. Uh, there were still positions at West Point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the focused in that area around New York. The army uh, was dissolved. The Continental Army was dissolved uh, in seventeen eighty four. In uh, June or July eighty four. Not sure. Uh, June or July of 84. And then the very next day, the U.S. Army was created in Congress. Mm -hmm. A small force, mostly just to um, guard the uh, weapons at West Point Mm -hmm. and what's now the Springfield Armory in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. That's that's what the force was for. It's only about 100, 100 men. And um, so, did we rely? Was the plan then to just to rely if something came up back on the militias? Yes, mm-hmm. right. So they stayed active in the states. Uh, again, yes, but not on foot. They would right. they would only be raised if needed. Okay. Um, and one one point, one interesting point is uh, that the U.S. Army's old guard that does the ceremonies and the mm-hmm. twilight tattoos, uh, their uniforms are replica of the seventeen eighty four. Uniform, not oh, from okay. the Revolution. Oh, okay. They look like they're Revolutionary War soldiers, but um, you know, people who are experts in uniforms can tell right away. Oh no, that's the 1784 uh, regulations and uniforms. Well, that's good, and that's that's a great transition. I mean, thank you so much. This has been sure. a really enlightening. A lot of details here um, about you know how the Revolutionary War ended and what happened to the U.S. Army. But uh, before we finish, I do like to get a bit of a Hua trivia okay. from uh, from our guests here about the time frame we're talking about. So do you have something to share, a, a wowed piece of Hua trivia? Sure. It's about my favorite, well, second favorite general. Everyone's favorite general has to be Washington. My second favorite general is Nathaniel Green. And uh, in a little, little ironic twist, the trivia would be who uh, or what religious upbringing – did Nathaniel Green uh, have mm. as a uh, as a child and into his young adulthood? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> he was a Quaker, which is ironic because the Quakers uh, were and are a pacifist uh, religious sect uh, that um, was very common in Pennsylvania. We normally associate the Quakers with the Penn family of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. However, there was a, uh, a very strong and large contingent of Quaker families in Rhode Island, and that was, that was Green's home colony slash state. Um, he uh, fell away from them in his, his early adulthood. Um, he had joined a militia unit, which was not acceptable to Quaker doctrine. Um, and eventually, once he became a commissioned officer in the Continental Army, he was eventually uh, what was called read out of or basically thrown out of 
the Quaker faith uh, in, by 1777. That is uh, fascinating. Um, but uh, everything you've, you've shared with us today, it's uh, great information. And uh, thank you so much for being here and for your discussions about the Southern War and the end of the Revolutionary War and your insights about the Newburgh Conspiracy, a very important point, significant moment Absolutely. in American uh, or U.S. Army history. So if anyone wants to learn more about the Revolutionary War or Army history in general, I encourage you to explore our website at history.army.mil. And you can also find the publications that uh, Dr. Moss has written for the Center of Military History there as well, just uh, on our publications tab. And if you want to experience Army history every day, then visit our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please join us every week on this podcast for more in-depth discussions about Army history as we cover topics from all eras of U.S. Army history, examining battles, soldier experiences, equipment, weapons, tactics, and lots of trivia. Thanks for joining us today on the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. For the Center of Military History, I'm Lee Reynolds. And until next time, we're history. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or opinions of the U.S. Army or Department of Defense. For more information about the Army's proud history and heritage, go to history.army.mil.com.